Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for April 2016. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month. Let's start with a bit of cardiac surgery. Transcatheter or surgical aortic valve replacement in intermediate risk patients published in the New England Journal of Medicine. With increasing operator experience worldwide and acceptance that transcatheter aortic valve replacement or TAVI produces equivalent outcomes for high-risk aortic stenosis, the next obvious question is, is transcatheter aortic valve replacement equivalent, better or worse than surgery in intermediate-risk patients? So in this study, 2,032 intermediate risk patients defined as Society of Thoracic Surgeons estimate of risk of death in the next 30 days of 4 to 8 percent or less than 4 percent with a coexisting condition that's not represented in the risk of death model. They enrolled these 2032 intermediate risk patients from 57 centres in the US and Canada and they were randomised to the Edwards Life Science Sapien XT heart valve system either transfemoral or transthoracic, and patients were stratified by that, or surgical aortic valve replacement. The sample size, they estimated that uh, they needed 1,000 per group based on an 80% power to show non-inferiority of TAVI assuming a baseline event rate of 30% at two years and that's a baseline event rate of a primary outcome of death from any cause or disabling stroke. So they had 1,550 who ended up in the transfemoral arm and once in that arm they were randomized to TAVI or surgical valve and 482 were randomized to the transthoracic arm. Again they were then uh, got TAVI or aortic valve. Primary outcome, there was no difference in this primary outcome of death from any cause or disabling stroke at two years with the hazard ratio for TAVI of 0.89, 95% confidence intervals of 0.73 to 1.09 and a p-value of 0.25. The transfemoral TAVI resulted in a lower rate of death or disabling stroke than surgery has a ratio of 0.79, 95% confidence intervals 0.62 to 1, p-value of 0.05. And there was no difference with the transthoracic group. In terms of secondary outcomes, there were no differences in the individual components of the primary outcome at two years or at earlier time points, so 30 days, one year. 10 of the 994 TAVI patients had valve embolization. 22 had a second valve inserted within the first valve because of moderate or severe aortic regurgitation. The major vascular complications were more frequent in the TAVI group in the first 30 days, 7.9% versus 5.0% p-value of 0.008. But the TAVI group had uh, several less common complications, life-threatening bleeding, acute kidney injury, and new AF. Rehospitalization was similar, and there was a similar decrease in New York Heart Association heart failure symptoms in both groups. 
in both groups, left ventricular ejection fraction and aortic valve area improved significantly in the first 30 days. There was more paravalvular leak in the TAVI group and TAVI patients with moderate or severe paravalvular AR at 30 days had higher mortality at two years. Overall, this study reports non-inferiority with TAVI compared to surgical aortic valve replacement for intermediate risk patients with severe aortic stenosis, with some difference in complication patterns. In addition, the cohort eligible for transfemoral TAVI had reduced mortality, and this group will need to be evaluated prospectively to test superiority. So let's stick with the New England Journal of Medicine and we have amiodarone, lidocaine or placebo in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So what is the best first-line medication for VFVT in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in terms of favourable neurological outcome? Is it amiodarone, lidocaine or placebo or saline? This multicenter RCT conducted in 10 North American sites with 55 EMS agencies set out to answer this. They enrolled 3,026 adult patients with non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and shock refractory VFVT. After they received one or more shocks, patients were assigned to amiodarone 300 to 450 milligrams lidocaine 120 to 180 milligrams, saline 3 to 6 mils, and it was based on weight. The sample size they estimated based on a 90% power to detect an absolute difference of 6.3% of the primary outcome, which was survival to hospital discharge, um, from a baseline event rate of 29.7% in the placebo group, that they would need a sample size of 3,000 patients. The baseline data was similar between the groups, age of 63, approximately 70% were witnessed, bystander CPR occurred in 60%, time from call to EMS was less than 6 minutes, time to ALS was 8 minutes. In terms of the intervention data, the time from call to first dose was 19 minutes in non-witness arrest and 12 minutes in witnessed arrest. The primary outcome, no difference in the survival to hospital discharge with 24.4% in the amiodarone group, 23.7% in the lignocaine group and 21% in the saline group. Amiodarone versus placebo had a 3.2% difference, the p-value 0.08. Lignocaine versus placebo, 2.6% difference, p-value 0.16 and amiodarone versus lignocaine, 0.7% difference, so no difference. In terms of secondary outcomes, uh, the neurological outcomes at discharge were similar. There was heterogeneity of treatment effect with respect to whether the arrest was witnessed um, as active drugs were associated with significantly higher survival rate than placebo in bystander witnessed arrest but not unwitnessed arrest. More amiodarone recipients required temporary cardiac pacing than did recipients of lidocaine or placebo. There were no differences in the CPR process, but there were increased shocks delivered in the placebo group, so that's 5 versus 6 for both lidocaine and amiodarone. So overall, 
This study reports that treatment with lidocaine, amiodarone or placebo did not result in a high rate of survival or favourable neurological outcome in VFVT out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. In the witnessed arrest group, there was a survival benefit with active agents and amiodarone was associated with a greater pacing requirement. So does this really mean that the active agents are not particularly helpful? Are they simply delivered too late with the outcome already decided by the time that they are given? Certainly one to think about. Let's stick with rate, rhythm and cardiac surgery in the New England Journal of Medicine. We have rate control versus rhythm control for AF after cardiac surgery. So AF post-cardiac surgery occurs, we think, in about a third of patients, prolongs their stay, and is associated with morbidity and mortality. So what's the best initial treatment strategy, rate or rhythm? This multi-center RCT conducted in 23 sites in the US and Canada randomized 695 out of 2,109, so there was a 33% event rate, adult patients with new onset AF, and that was defined as it persisted for more than an hour, who were hemodynamically stable within seven days of surgery to rate control, where the goal was a resting heart rate of less than 100 beats per minute, using amiodarone plus or minus an additional rate control agent. If AF persisted for 24 to 48 hours, DCR was performed and it was recommended a maintenance dose of 200 milligrams per day or less of amiodarone was continued for 60 days unless side effects occurred. Anticoagulation with uh, lower molecular weight heparin bridged to warfarin was recommended for all patients that had recurrent or continuing AF after 48 hours. Sample size, they estimated 520 patients per group based on a 90% power to detect an absolute difference of two days per group. Uh, and the baseline data was similar between groups. Average time to post-op AF was 2.4 days. In terms of intervention data, 24% of patients in the rhythm group did not complete the course of amiodarone and received beta blockers and or calcium channel blockers. 27% of the rate control group received amiodarone or DCR. The primary outcome was total hospital days and it didn't differ. The mean was 6.4 days in the rate control group versus 7 days in the rhythm control group and various post-hoc analyses did not result in change to this outcome. In terms of secondary outcomes, there were no differences in readmission or ED visits. By day 60, a stable non-AF rhythm was achieved for the previous 30 days in 93.8% in the rate group and 97.9% in the rhythm group, and that's a p-value of 0.02. There was no difference in death or stroke at day 60. So overall, this study confirms that new onset AF is common after cardiac surgery and that there is no difference in important outcomes to day 60 if initial management is directed at rate or rhythm control. The only exception is a higher proportion of the rhythm control group achieve a stable rhythm by day 60. Now this was a comparative effectiveness trial and about 25% of patients did not adhere to their assigned strategy, mainly due to ineffectiveness. 
Looking at the non-significant results, you could conclude that an initial rhythm control strategy led to better resolution of AF, with a resultant decrease in anticoagulation, but more amiodarone-related toxicity, while a rate control strategy led to slower resolution of AF, with more anticoagulation and less toxicity, but there's no real difference in outcomes overall. So, back to physician and patient preference. Okay, let's move over to JAMA, where we've got an effect of a quality improvement intervention with daily round checklists, goal setting and clinician prompting on mortality of critically ill patients. Are quality improvement initiatives directed at how we round, such as checklists and daily goal assessments, effective at reducing mortality in critically ill adults? So this two-phase study was conducted in 118 Brazilian ICUs over an 18-month period. They looked at the first 60 admissions admitted to ICU for over 48 hours in each ICU in each phase. The authors set the scene in the introduction by proposing that Brazilian ICUs have cultures and practices that are amenable to process of care interventions. That is, there's a baseline sort of poor adherence to guidelines, worse severity adjusted outcomes and vertical hierarchy issues, etc. So this is what they did. In phase one, which is observational, around 7,000 patients were enrolled in the ICUs and 50% were ventilated. Multidisciplinary rounds occurred on 55.3 days per 100 patient weekdays and ICU mortality was 25%, hospital mortality was 32.5%. Phase 2 was a cluster randomised trial where ICUs were randomised to multifaceted QI intervention or routine care. 6,700 patients were enrolled, 50% ventilated. The intervention was modifying daily multidisciplinary rounds to include the use of checklists and discussion of goals of care, clinician prompting later in the day to ensure follow through with checklists and adherence and goals of care for all patients during their entire ICU stay. The checklist was developed based on the clinical practice guideline development cycle that targeted 11 care processes aimed at prevention of VTE, VAP, vaccine, UTIs, nutrition, analgesia, sedation, readiness for extubation, detection of sepsis, ARDS, antibiotic optimization, and reduction of time volume. The strategy was to improve treatment for patients, reduce errors of remission by nurses, reading round checklists and goals of order, read aloud by the team, afternoon, afternoon, content, etc. Processes to review the interventions included meetings, training, modifications, participation, all feedback, videos, SMSV, progress reviews, escalation, senior clinician leaders, 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 mortality of sub 6% patient 30% with 50 patients per ICU. So, so primary, primary outcome, hospital mortality did not differ. 33% versus 34.8% in the control group, ratio 1 ratio 2, value 0.88. In terms of safety climate, there was a significant 
in increasing perception of teamwork and, and a safer climate occurred. Sensitivity outcomes of multidisciplinary rounds increased from 61.5 to 92.8 per 100 patient weekdays. That was highly significant. Adherence to care processes, the four areas that had low baseline adherence to care processes, which is total volume, light sedation, uh, CBC, urinary catheters, all improved. In terms of clinical outcomes, secondary outcomes, there was no difference in ICU mortality, CLABSI, BAP, UTIs, VFD, ICUs to stay, hospitals to stay. So, overall, this study reports a large QI initiative aimed at improving the use of checklists, goal setting and teamwork did improve some processes of care, but did not alter outcomes. Why? Perhaps it's because they changed process, or the discussions that occurred around the patient, but not the actual decision making, or what was done to the patient. That is, areas where adherence to best practice was low, such as reduction of sedation, didn't change that much. So the care that the patient received did not change that much. So would a study that also led to a change in the delivery of care produce different results? Who knows? Finally, changes in bone mineral density in the year after critical illness in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. So, is it possible that long-term sequelae of critical illness extend beyond cognitive and physical decline? That specific organ dysfunction occurs that may be amenable to intervention? This prospective observational study describes a significant increase in bone loss in survivors of intensive care compared to matched community controls. So in the 12 months after ICU, the ICU cohort had a greater decrease in BMD at the spine and the femur compared to controls. This was particularly pronounced in females and there was a significant increase in 10-year fracture risk for major fractures and hip fractures. The pattern of bone resorption markers was consistent with accelerated bone turnover and the population that completed the study were independent with high quality of life rating suggesting that they were a relatively well cohort. The study was limited by small numbers and a high dropout rate, but of interest the patients that died or withdrew were older, sicker, with high bone turnover markers during ICU, raising the possibility that they may experience greater skeletal morbidity than the ones who were actually measured. So, overall this study adds bone loss, particularly in females, to the problems that may impair the recovery in critically ill patients. Anti-resorptors are effective at preventing bone loss, reducing fractures and reducing mortality. So it will be interesting to see if there is effect in this population. So that's it for Journal Club for Critique for this month. Come to the website or see you next month. Goodbye.